Welcome to this very special edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and really looking forward to talking with our very special guest tonight, whom I'm going to be announcing and sharing a bit uh, of background about him with you in just one moment. But quickly, a reminder that Restorative Justice on the Rise is media that matters and it's a public dialogue on justice and peace building and systems transformation. We provide connection, advocacy, education, and inspired action as a public service to individuals and communities and seek to proactively improve relationships and structures within the spheres of communities and our world. It was founded in 2011 and currently there are over 175 interviews, including advocacy panels, including um, special dialogues with leaders in much beyond the restorative justice movement in peace building and related fields. It's an honor to do this work together with you. You're an integral part of these sessions. And so tonight, as with every time we come together for a public forum, we invite warmly your questions, and tonight specifically, if you would please use the Q&A tab in order to submit your questions um, for our very special guest. That would be on the webcast page. Most of you, I believe, at this point are familiar, but many new people coming in these days, so just wanting to make sure that you're familiar with this room. The Q&A tab, again, is on the webcast page. You can submit comments and questions all throughout the hour, as well as get involved in a chat with fellow participants tonight. So there's a chat room available for you as well. The theme for tonight is so deeply poignant. And of course, we're with Edgar Villanueva for the next hour and just so excited to be speaking with him about his work and of course his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. The framing question is, what if wealth could be used to heal, restore, connect? And Edgar has uh, an expansive experience um, professionally and personally in a very small nutshell he is a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy and currently serves as chair of the board of directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy and is a board member of the Andrus Family Fund, a national foundation that works to improve outcomes for vulnerable youth. Edgar is also an instructor with the grant-making school at the Johnson Center at Grand Valley State University and currently serves as Vice President of Programs and Advocacy at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, where he oversees grant investment and capacity building supports for education justice campaigns across the United States. Edgar previously held leadership roles at Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in North Carolina and at the Marguerite Casey Foundation in Seattle. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he is the author of the best-selling Decolonizing Wealth, which offers hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. In addition to working in philanthropy for many years, he has consulted with numerous nonprofit organizations and national and global philanthropies on advancing racial equity inside of their institutions and through their investment strategies. Edgar holds two degrees from the Gillings Global School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and is an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. He currently resides in Brooklyn, New York, and one of the things that was also very poignant and of note is he has worked the full spectrum of what we call social finance and um, per se, and, and of course his hands-on life experiences of living in poverty um, as he grew up. So um, he's a young man serving with a very distinct awareness of the, the full spectrum of what might be considered wealth. 
and the lack thereof. Um, I'd like to just mention, too, Alicia Garza, co-creator of Black Lives Matter Global Network and, of course, the principal for Black Futures Lab, says, Decolonizing wealth is a must-read for those looking to achieve the change we want to see in the world. Compelling, honest, and kind, Edgar is clear that we must free philanthropy itself from frameworks that exacerbate problems rather than activate solutions. And so, Edgar, it, it's really a deep honor to have you with us tonight, and thank you so much for taking time to be with us to share more about this journey and this incredible book that you've written. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure to be on. And, you know, Edgar, I was wondering if you might be willing to start with um, sharing a bit about a pivotal moment that you might have had where you knew that this book needed to be written. <laughs> there have been so many, but right away <laughs> I was reminded uh <laughs> I was reminded of uh a time when I first got into philanthropy. Um, you know, you shared a little bit about my background. Uh you know, me finding myself in philanthropy was is is pretty atypical. And um after a number of years of working at a foundation in North Carolina, um, I remember being at a board meeting, and I was in conversation with the board and staff and presenting some new ideas and, and you know, very politely pushing um, us in the conversation to move resources in a way that were were uh, different, uh, a way that was different uh, from how we have had been investing in, uh, in, in a way that I saw as being more equitable. And I remember as a, a younger professional sitting around that table and, uh, you know, being quite good at managing up and being respectful and knowing how to play the game, um, I was called out by the uh, senior leadership of that organization in front of the entire room um, and was told that um, I was getting too big for my britches. Now, if you're from the South like me, uh, you may know what that means, but if not, uh, when we say someone's too big for their britches, we're basically, it's a, a polite way of putting someone in their place and saying that you're out of line, you are uh, speaking above your pay grade, and it's actually a very diminishing sort of um, phrase. And I, I remember at that point feeling um, very kind of sunken in um, with myself and uh, really, you know, having been passionate about the work and the mission of the organization and my leadership at that moment, that was one of the first signs where, uh, for me, it really occurred that, uh, you know, there's, there's something more to this. This, 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 this industry of philanthropy and charity actually is, is not always about actually real change in communities. And, uh, if I were going to really keep that as a priority or keep that uh, mission central to what I was doing, then I was going to be in for a, a, a tough road ahead <laughs> in some situations. So that was where, you know, kind of the light began coming off for me that things were not all that they um, seemed to be at times. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of call out the injustice that, that I felt in that moment. And, and Edgar, it, one of the, the overlaps, um, there's so much interconnection between what we call restorative justice um, and what you're talking about all throughout this book. Um, and one of the things that I, I believe it was Desmond Tutu um, in the truth and reconciliation process constantly reminded us that in order for us to begin to heal or even think about healing, we first had to address the wound. We, fir we first have to open it up, you know, and look at it honestly. And that's one of the things that I just am so inspired by you um, and how you lay this out for pretty much anyone, um, including myself, you know, a, a white woman privileged, you know, from the Northwest United States, um, uh, who uh, having it laid out in this way, um, the way you, you share with us about colonization and how um, it's really manipulated and has been controlled, um, it's like that light bulb going on, I think, for not just for me, but for many of us, to have it, have it um, 
parsed out so eloquently in the way that you do in the beginning of, of the book. Um, so in a long and winding way, what I'm trying to invite here is, would you be willing to share your reflection on why it's so important to call it out and then share share with us a bit about um, you know colonization um, and and versus what decolonization entails. Absolutely. Is that too so much of a mouthful? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, I got you, and I'll I'll, I'll pause because I okay. can definitely uh, spend the thank rest you of because the I hour. do have Irish in me, and I I do go I I I speak in circular ways at times. So thank you for following me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know I think. Uh, for for me um, and for a lot of us, the culture of uh, of this country and beyond, maybe just the culture of humanity, is often to sweep pain under the carpet and to quickly arrive at a solution or to be, you know, we're kind of taught from an early age like to just press on through and to, to look at look forward. And uh, I think you know, for for me, actually understanding our history in the U.S. and the history of colonization around the world is a really critical first step because there are just generations and generations of lasting traumatic impacts of colonization, um, from historical colonization, but also colonization that is continuing to happen even in the United States. And so for anyone who is in the business of social change or philanthropy or impact investing, anyone who is really wanting to address social problems uh, in a place has to understand the historical context of how we arrive at that problem. And I think that's where we often miss the mark um, in philanthropy in particular because we're so solutions-focused. We're not applying the lens of race and history and, and place to our strategies um, as we're looking to um, move money. But I felt like it was really important in the book to give sort of a primer on colonization. And, um, you know, for me as a Native American, this was something that I actually um, on my own had to learn and process and come to terms with. And the book outlines my sort of personal journey at decolonizing my own thinking because although I'm Native American, I grew up in North Carolina um, in a very assimilated uh, sort of way. And I was taught in public schools a certain type of history that was not quite uh, the reality of what happened with the colonization of the United States. And so um, I think we often romanticize uh, that history, and we think of the colonizers actually as heroes, and that uh, what happened through the process of historical colonization is something that resulted in something that's good, and that we're all better off as a result of that. Um, but the reality is, is that colonization itself was um, something that was, you know, is, was and is um, very, very much, um, you know, an atrocity. And the traumatic impacts of colonization are something that, uh, you know, are, are, are something that we are still grappling with to this day. And in order for us to really move forward and to heal and to think about how we uh, sort of bring back uh, a connection in this very polarized country and, and the world, we have to explore how we got separated in the first place. And colonization is, is really uh, what happened. Colonization was about exploiting people. It was about separating and dividing and controlling. And that mindset is really the underpinning on how the United States was, was established. And so I, I use this term in the book called the colonizing virus. And uh, I, I think of the dynamics of colonization, that separation, that division, that exploitation, almost as a virus that has um, really pervaded every aspect of our society. And it still shows up in our policies and our systems and our media, uh, in the, the narrative that we sort of breathe every day in ways that we've become quite accustomed to. And in order to really see the traumatic effects of what has happened with colonization on indigenous communities, on people of color, and on white people, we have to sort of really uh, kind of take a, a ride down the history lane and understand what happened with colonization and then understand how our family history inter intersects with that 
uh, to really understand what has been lost. It's there that we can begin to think about, okay, well, what do we do about this? How do we repair? Uh, we cannot undo colonization. In the U.S., we've had 500 years of colonization. So much has been lost. So much pain has happened. Entire languages have been completely eradicated, entire groups of people. Um, but what we can do is actually understand how pervasive that trauma is and how it's actually impacting families like mine present day and then begin to um, ask ourselves, how can we at least um, in our day-to-day -day actions as, as people, as, as agents of change, how can we actually participate in helping to stop additional harm from happening to families and, and people? Um, and how can we actually use any resources or decision-making power that we have to help repair or heal that trauma? Mm -hmm. In just a moment, I'd like to get into this concept of uh, wealth as medicine. Um, but I'd like to go back to the introduction um, that was, uh, excuse me, um, the foreword, that is, that um, Jennifer Buffett wrote. And it's very powerful. Uh, just a quick quick little clip, clip out of it. Um, she says, the more we heard, the more we realized that these rooms full of wealthy and powerful white men could not possess the wisdom we sought. Far too often, they were searching for answers with their right hand to problems that they had created or contributed to with their left. Those who had benefited most from the system of wealth consolidation were seen as the experts and the saviors of those who had been exploited and harmed by it. But why? In our experience, in our own experience, that is, assuming control of a vast amount of money had nothing to do with having all the answers. And she goes on to say, humility is something we could stand to see a lot more of among those of us who control the wealth of the world. Humility is not the same thing as modesty or false modesty. Humility is characterized by an accurate sense of self assessing not just our weaknesses, but also our privileges and strengths, being honest with ourselves about both. The root of the word is related to the soil, like the word humus. Humility literally means being close to the ground. I really feel that sentiment throughout this book and in the voice that you bring to, to this predicament. I wondered if you had any reflections on, on her forward. Um, well, it was actually from both Jennifer and Peter Buffett. Well, one, I was really elated that they agreed to write the forward to the book. Um, as I was in the process of writing the book, I interviewed lots of folks, including indigenous leaders, um, people of color, um, activists like Alicia Garza, who you mentioned earlier, and also people with wealth that I thought were very forward-thinking about their approach to how they use their resources. And uh, I think the what Jennifer and Peter wrote in the book and how they are practicing their philanthropy at the Novo Foundation is just really reflective of the type of spirit um, and the way that we can actually move from a transactional way of, of moving money and capital to a way that actually is based on relationships. And um, that really is getting at undoing the structures that be around power and um, oppression and using money in a way that is uh, liberating. Um, because although it seems counterintuitive, the philanthropic industry itself has evolved to mirror sort of colonial structures. Um, the, the idea that we have money and resources in this sector, so therefore we are the experts and we know best, is, is a, a very dangerous um, sentiment, very dangerous attitude, and uh, that's uh, exactly what happened in colonization. Um, you know, folks were uh, felt like we have the white burden of spreading the gospel to the world, and we are actually helping people. And so the, in many of their minds, perhaps they thought they were doing something good. So even our well-meaning behaviors, um, if you want to call colonization well-meaning, that's a stretch, I know, um, but even in our in our you know well-meaning uh, philanthropic work, if we are not very reflective of how we are doing this work and who is benefiting and how power is operating in this work, we could actually um, do more harm than good. 
Edgar, um, on that, just curious to know if you are aware of, of um, foundations um, that are engaging the communities they serve um, towards the criteria, towards the funding criteria. Are you aware of listening projects that might be coming out of uh, listening projects, but also like concerted boards of representation from communities that um, that might you know be advising foundations more and more on um, the criteria that then turn into grants that are allocated. There, there is a, a very uh, it feels like a slow trickle um, of a change, but I am seeing more and more um, folks understand that it is a best practice to have uh, diversity at your board and governance level. Uh, particularly racial diversity and having folks that, um, you know, come from and have lived experiences of the issues that you care about. Um, you mentioned in my bio, for example, the Andrews Family Fund, um, which is mm -hmm. a, a family foundation. And um, this particular family foundation um, had a conversation for eight years, kind of deliberating uh, the idea of bringing on uh, folks who are non-family members onto their board and, um, you know, and the eight years of conversations is a long time, but they were being very intentional and also evolving in their own understanding of social justice and analysis. So it was sort of a, a you know, a very layered journey. And so they're just one example of even with family foundations, sort of a shift where people are beginning to see, you know, this this is not necessarily about my family and its, its legacy and its wealth. But these are resources that belong to the community because of all the things that go into how this wealth was accumulated from, you know, a history of slavery and genocide and exploiting low-wage workers that contributed to um, helping uh, amass wealth in a lot of cases to how wealth has escaped taxation and, um, you know, therefore has uh, diminished the amount of resources going into public coffers to support um, you know, the safety net and services that, that we, we need as a public. And so I think that mindset is is really shifting. And part of the narrative that I'm pushing up against with this book and other work that, that folks are doing um, is to help us understand that, you know, when we think of wealth, it is it's wealth of the community and not wealth that is just, um, you know, really should be in the hands of a few folks. And so that requires a democratic, um, you know, say over how, those resources are distributed. Now, one of the things that you point out that I think more and more people are becoming aware of, um, regardless of, of background, of race, of color, um, is the, the, the fact that, you know, it's one thing to have a token um, person of color, you know, representing. It's another thing to deeply listen and to deeply honor the fact that they, they play an integral role in informing how things might move. Could, could you speak a little bit more to, could you speak to that? Why do we do that? Why, why do we have this tokenization thing still happening? <laughs> I know it's kind of a big question to take on, but. No, it's really important. I think, you know, in my, gosh, 15 years of being a funder, um, when I ask nonprofits, what is the one thing that you wish funders would do differently? The answer 15 years later still is to, is, um, to listen. And I'm, I'm really kind of appalled by that because I think that's like the easiest thing to do is to actually, uh, you know, take a seat back and to listen and learn. Sort of the, the upside to being a funder, you know, there's a lot of perks that come with a job. It, it also is a very demanding, difficult job. I don't want to minimize it. Um, but the, the thing is, when you when you have resources, you don't have to be an expert. Um, if we trust folks who are doing the work on the front lines and, 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 and you know, trust them to lead us to others that are doing that work and, and you know, sit and learn from them, we don't have to be an expert. But there's something about um, – you know, again, when you have power and you have resources, it's really difficult to enter a space and not be um, the one sitting at the front of the class or being the one talking. It's really hard for us to stop talking and long enough to actually listen. 
Um, in the book, I have this this uh, term that I use, uh, listening in color. And uh, what I mean by that is actually getting to a place where we, those of us who um, sort of manage or control resources or have resources, we we are acknowledging the wisdom of those who have been excluded and ex- exploited by the system and really get to a place where we believe that they possess exactly the perspective uh, and the wisdom that is needed to fix it. And so I think that listening in color is a superpower that we can wield to really change the status quo and to really get to a place where we move beyond um, a place of needing to be the one always leading the conversation, but a place where we can hold back our own conclusions and opinions and judgments. And so um, that is uh, really where uh, I think the rubber meets the road that we we as uh, you know, folks who are trying to build relationships across divides, across, uh, you know, different backgrounds and communities to get to a place of acknowledging um, where what we have in common um, in order to build a future that is a, a shared vision. We have to learn to listen. And I think, um, you know, we're so polarized right now that we struggle, I think, to listen to folks who are not completely aligned with us on all 10 points, right? But is it possible that we can find some common ground with folks uh, around a couple of the points and move forward together around that type of, um, you know, agenda? But we've got to at least uh, listen to folks long enough to understand if that's a possibility. Mm. You know, grief grief and despair are, are something that um, seem like a, a kind of a key element um, if we're really being real, uh, once once we understand like the manipulation that we've been under for for so many hundreds of years, and begin to wake up, um, I, I wonder if you have thoughts on on the importance of grief and despair, or you know maybe um, how that plays out in how that has played out in your journey personally if you're willing to share with us um what how can we how can we be really true to um the importance of of grief of of despair and even anger um which of course is leading us into um some of the steps of healing that you share about in the book Sure. You know, I think the starting place is a place of grief, um, which I always kind of feel terrible when I say that because uh, it's not a very fun place to start a process. And uh, but as mm. you alluded to uh, earlier, Molly, I think um, really understanding the, the the problem and and really grappling with um, the challenges of injustice uh, is a place that we have to start. And when you um, bring back, when you tear back that that curtain and really look the truth of our history in the face, and it's ugly, ugly face, um, you're going to feel sad about it because we have all been misled um, and taught narratives that are not real. And when we actually hear the stories of folks who have been through um, all kinds of stuff, it, it's it's sad, right? And so in order to uh, to really see sustainable change happen and to start a healing process, we can't just jump into that. We have to really properly diagnose, like, what's going on. We have to understand that, uh, you know, there is a, a process of, of truth before we get to reconciliation. And the truth is something that is quite sad. Um, however, we have to stop and feel the hearts and understand what our role um, as people, um, as, a, as our uh, family, and then maybe as an institution, like what role have we played actually in, um, in you know, that suffering and contributing to that suffering or how have we suffered? I think for me, my personal journey around it was um, getting to a place. I remember um, it wasn't until I was in college that I really deeply connected with indigenous culture and community because as a young boy, my family moved away. My mom was a single mother. She, we left the community and moved to the city of Raleigh. And for my own um, sort of protection or out of 
you know, wanting me to succeed. There was sort of a, a push for me to uh, assimilate to white dominant culture as much as possible. And because that was what, you know, many folks, including my family, felt like was uh, the, the way out of, of poverty and to be accepted and to be successful. And so for me, as uh, a Native American person, I had to go on a journey to understand my own history and how uh, where I am, you know, where I live in this ecosystem of the world and um, in this moment in history and uh, to, to get to a place to understand why I am who I am and why my family has so much going on. There's still just trauma and um, I come from a family that has experienced uh, lots of violence and uh, incarceration and drug abuse and, uh, you know, a lack of opportunity for jobs and education. And so, you know, I even at one point internalized the idea that if everyone in my family would just work hard and make good choices, the American dream is possible. And it took me a while to come to the, the you know, the understanding that it's not about working hard. We have a history of systemic racism in this country um, and very intentional policies that have been put in place to, you know, to displace us and that have contributed to uh, the trauma that folks are, are grappling with. And so really sitting in that uh, truth and as uncomfortable as it is and letting it work its way through our body. And for listeners who um, are white and come from a, a place of privilege, this is something that, uh, you know, the grieving process is not just for indigenous folks or people of color. I think that uh, white folks have to also explore their family histories and understand what has actually been lost for you um, and, uh, you know, by subscribing to this idea of the American dream or this idea of whiteness um, that has sort of, you know, we've, we have history that has privileged certain folks. And so um, how has that uh, idea of, of whiteness, what guilt may it cause, um, what has been lost in terms of culture and language and tradition and your families as well. Um, and so when we kind of get to the place of um, really fully understanding all of the traumatic impacts of colonization and history um, and racism and all of this stuff, it's just going to be super sad. And that's okay. We, we're human. This is, this is a human process. And, um, but not only we, you know, we have to grapple with this messiness before we can really get to a place of, of making real change. We're talking with Edgar Villanueva, who is the author of Decolonizing Wealth. Really would like to encourage everyone to check out the website, which is decolonizingwealth.com. There's a lot of resources there, including events, media, um, and much more. Take a Take Action um, section, which is a powerful and compelling spot to really make this actual, um, to start working the concepts and steps that Edgar speaks about so eloquently in Decolonizing Wealth, which is a provocative analysis of the oppressive dynamics at play in philanthropy and finance. And um, Edgar, you just mentioned something very critical, I believe, to everybody's journey regardless, um, and that's the internalization of colonization. It's a lot of isations, but... Uh, that is a very real, uh, what might be called, I can't remember in the matrix whether it was the blue pill or the red pill that put everybody to sleep believing that this was the reality. But it feels like this idea that it's us that is the problem can really capture a lifetime if we're not careful. So like, it could keep us in the colonization mindset that has been shoved down our throats that, like you were saying, has really encroached and is a virus, the, the colonization virus that you speak of in the book. What, what are the steps that you have observed um, that really are helping people to wake up quickly? How are we doing that together? 
You know, I think that it's uh, there's work that has to be done on a personal level and within uh, within family, um, and then of course work work to be done uh, in the workplace. And where I've seen success is for folks to actually begin by understanding their family history. And we have we're a very young country in the United States, and I think. Um, you know, many of us, uh, you know, kind of assimilated to American culture, and that's fantastic. I love this country. I love our culture. But we are all um, also other things. <laughs> many of us come from other places and are also other things. And I think that that, that, uh, that loss of the other um, in our lives has resulted in a lot of sadness and actually emptiness. And um, because for many folks that has been replaced by uh, sort of the idea of whiteness, which we know, again, is a, a thing that was made up and is not real. And so I think, um, you know, one of the one of a, an awesome experience that I had with um, a, someone who's now a really good friend is a, a white woman who um, comes from wealth and is uh, married into a family that has wealth. And she began to do some of this personal work and exploring where is her family from and, like, wh where did this money come from? Because these are important questions. We we need to know. Um, and I also think there's just something happening in the world with, you know, all these DNA tests that are so popular right now and advertised on TV. I think someone's capitalizing off of this because um, there is an innate desire within all of us as humans to to know our history and to know our original teachings and to be connected to one another. I mean, that's that's just um, who we are as human beings, and a lot of that has been lost. And so when you begin to do that work and understand your family's history, um, you know, it, it's just going to bring that sense of awareness of, of who we are and what privileges we've had along the way, how we've been set up or propped up for success, or maybe how we have not. Um, it's just going to really bring uh, context to the journey of healing that, that we all need. Um, for my friend Hillary that I talked about, her next step was um, to actually apologize, which is which is step two that I outline in the book. And I think um, the idea of apologizing is so profound. It's sort of basic in some ways, right? Like we are taught by our parents that if you, you do something wrong, you should apologize, right? And not just say I'm sorry, but actually like not do it again. And uh, Hillary's story really inspires me because for her, after she went through a grieving process of understanding her family's history and um, also how wealth was accumulated, and in her case, she um, had the research to show that her family owned slaves and, you know, that wealth was accumulated in some ways that just really made her sad and were unfortunate, she decided to um, actually do some apologizing and apologizing is so powerful because it be, it's the it's where we begin to move from this internal self-absorbed uh, kind of you know frame of mind to actually who are the people that we have harmed, and the focus begins to shift externally. And so one of the things that Hillary did was actually was uh, write 15 letters of apology to various. Uh, people of color and indigenous folks that she identified through her own process. Um, a letter of, um, you know, uh, a, a letter of apology. And it said uh, basically that she wanted to acknowledge um, how, uh, you know, her unconscious racism and white supremacy had caused pain um, for, um, you know, for many generations, her own, her own and her ancestors. Um, had caused pain, and she wanted to apologize. And what's so powerful about the act of apologizing, in addition to sort of moving away from that internal, um, you know, self-absorbed process, you're beginning to think about the people that have been harmed. Um, it's powerful for the, the people who received the apology, but it's also powerful just to actually declare that apology and declaring that in a way that it doesn't matter if your apology is accepted. It doesn't matter if someone even hears you or refuses to engage with you. You are doing what you need to do to acknowledge um, what has been lost and what role you may have played in, in you know, your, or your family has played historically in harming others. So that's something I invite everyone to do. I've, I've put made it as a part of my regular practice to just 
um, say, I'm sorry. We don't apologize enough. We so quickly defend um, because of our culture of needing to be perfect all the time and to paint a per- perfect mm-hmm. picture on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, this work is messy, and we are going to be offensive, and we're going to step in it, and um, there's a messy history, and it's a messy journey to get to healing, and we need to be willing to apologize. And right now, um, for everyone with us, we're we're gently going through the steps, um, which I'd love for you to talk about a little bit more uh, just re- recounting like what each of them are, because in the book you really go deeply into each of them, um, how to heal. Um, but let's let's go back for just a moment. Um, I know we we've got another 15 minutes here together tonight, so uh, let's talk about indigenous um, the indigenous worldview versus the colonized um, worldview of control. In the book, you you lay out a couple key um, uh, transitions between one or the other. And um, so colonized, for example, is to divide, whereas decolonized is connect, or it could be said indigenous. Um, an indigenous worldview is looking at our interconnection. You talk about Mitaki Oasin, and I'd, I'd love for you to, to share with us a little bit more about what that really means and what your what your um, definition even, if it could be, um, so to speak, a definition of indigenous worldview. You know, there's a lot of talk about indigenous in the restorative justice movement um, and just in general, but really, like, what are we talking about when we speak about and, and invite in indigenous worldviews? Really good question. So, yes. Yeah. For me, an indigenous worldview is is sort of what you were saying is actually sort of the opposite of the, the the colonization worldview. It is about connection. It is about belonging. Um, it is sort of uh, dismantling the separation paradigm and and understanding that we are all inherently connected to each other and to the planet. Um, that our interdependence is inescapable. And so that's um, a really radical notion and a radical mindset to take on in this day and age to really believe that we are all connected and that we are connected to this earth. The reason that we have so many things going on in the world today that are terrible and so much exploitation of the planet and of, of people is because we have mindsets of separation that if it's not happening within the, the borders of my home, then it doesn't impact me. It doesn't matter if people are being harmed or if we're harming the earth down the street, right? If I'm not seeing it and it's not immediately um, impacting me, then we feel disconnected from that. If we truly believe that we are in, uh, you know, inescapably, uh, inescapably connected um, and that what is happening to the earth really impacts us, then we're going to really drastically change the decisions that we're, we're making day to day. Um, and so that's that's really sort of a sentiment um, that that um, that I bring into the book, and I think that the you know sort of a uh, another idea that something that undergirds all of this is an idea of spirituality. Uh, we have become mm-hmm. so disconnected from mm-hmm. you know we have mind and heart, but we're not. We've gotten like spirit has just been kicked out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And I think even in sort of restorative justice conversations that have been modeled from indigenous culture that are based on those practices, in a lot of those cases, spirituality has been removed. And, uh, you know, so I think that it's understanding the complexity of who we are as people and all of those different layers and inviting um, holistic approaches and, and thinking that, that really brings all of our being into a, a, a way of existing. And so that's uh, that's sort of, uh, you know, I, I think where, what I'm trying to bring in, um, forward in this book is that that type of mindset of being uh, inherently connected, all my relations means that you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my relative, regardless of who you voted for. And in this day and age, that is a really difficult pill to swallow. Um, let me tell you personally that that was like a lesson for me with my elder after the most recent election in the U.S. 
um, where I felt personally angry and betrayed and, and afraid um, for me to arrive at a place that I can say, okay, um, the person across the room is my relative, that is my brother or my sister, mm-hmm. and I need to love them and respect them as a human being, regardless of those, you know, differences, is a, a that's radical love. <laughs> it's really radical love. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the type of approach and respect for one another that I'm calling for um, in the book, because I think, uh, you know, as it turns out that we all have more in common, um, then we actually will, you know, then we actually think and it's finding that common ground and that common humanity, um, you know, uh, with each other that's going to be a starting place for us to find a, a path out of this mess. Well, I love I love how you shared so much about um, your friend's experience with apology. I really appreciate that so much. And I'm sure everyone listening is feeling the same um, acknowledgement in those apologies of of you know the very specific things that 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 we are seeing that we've impacted that we've done to impact um naming those things it has such power and reflection of those things as best we can um, to to make sure that we're really connecting with um the people that we've impacted um that our ancestors have impacted that that we continue to impact. Um, that's a another piece of restorative practices that's that's really big is um, to listen without implicit infrastructures in our minds, um, clouding the meaning that's trying to come through about how this has impacted someone, um, and then and then acknowledging that by reflecting it back. Um, and and you go into uh, step four, relate, which um, coming back to the indigenous uh, versus colonized um, relationship, R- relate, um, connect, and uh, versus control and divide. And th- those are some powerful delineations that you make here. I, I added a couple down the line, but um, if we have time, we'll come back to those. But but you also speak to um, represent a step five. Can you can you take us from there to from represent to invest and 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 bring us full circle through these steps? Sure. In so um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so you know, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, after the sort of the the personal work that has to happen, because you know we we often hide behind our organizations and whatever. But organizations are just clusters of people, right? It's just us. So after a lot of this work is personal, but then as we're going through our own journeys, there are things that we can begin to do differently at work. And specifically in my book, I am addressing the sectors of philanthropy and social finance and even even finance where um, organizations are moving capital uh, through markets and through communities to uh, solve social problems. And and so represent is a step that after you've kind of done this work and you've built authentic relationships with communities to that are that are you know trusting we need to then think about how do we build whole new decision making tables so we talked earlier a little bit about tokenism and so when i say represent i don't mean that we diversify our board in in a way that brings one or two people from the community um, you know, but how do we imagine like building a whole new table, right? Um, not including people of color as an afterthought, but um, really thinking about let's reimagine how we are making decisions and sharing power here. So one of the things I ask for and represent is actually um, for philanthropic institutions that have very zero to none uh, accountability about it, their governance. Um, I think that at least half a foundation board should be people who come from the community and should be diverse. And so that's just one example of something that's not that hard and or complex that foundations can do differently to make sure people impacted by problems are actually at the table calling the shots. And I think you wanted me to speak from, just yeah. briefly yeah, about investment. Thank you. You got okay. it. Please. Okay. <laughs> So investing is kind of like, okay, it's time to show up With and do the, the work. With the idea also <laughs> as wealth as medicine. Excuse me, Edgar. Sorry to interrupt. 
Um, oh, sure. we, we had spoken just for a moment. Um, I, I actually had mentioned wealth as medicine. So let's start weaving that in, too, if we can. So we're at invest, which is sure. the sixth step, I believe. Sure. So investing is really the step that is that is the call to action. It's where, you know, the rubber meets the road of us doing what we um, are saying that we're about. And that is where is the money actually going? Um, who is at the table deciding uh, where money is going and where is money going? In philanthropy, um, communities of color are only receiving about 75 to 8% of philanthropic dollars. And so when you think about the history of colonization and, and slavery and genocide um, and how people of color and indigenous communities, what they gave up so that wealth can be accumulated and that, you know, we even have this field of philanthropy, and with all those considerations and then the fact that we only receive, you know, less than 10% of grant dollars, it's really unjust. So invest is a call to action to use resources in a way, um, putting money where the hurt is the worst, and that is in communities of color. So the idea of, of using money as medicine, this is sort of an indigenous uh, idea of medicine and, and sort of the indigenous worldview is something that is uh, restores balance, that brings about um, feelings of uh, something that is sacred and promotes healing, um, whether that is a healing of the body or the or, or, or mental state or emotional state. Anything can be medicine if we use it for a sacred purpose. And so my uh, sort of the premise in the book is that money itself is neutral. It's something that we created as human beings to as a proxy. But money has been used as a way to uh, dominate and control and separate. It wasn't about the money. It was about the people using money in a way that was harmful. And so I flipped that paradigm um, and, and flipped that in, in a way to say, well, if money has been used to harm, can money be used to help repair or heal? And my premise is that it can be if we think of money as a sacred um, tool and we're actually using all of our resources uh, in philanthropy and social impact investing and all of those spheres, if we're using resources to help um, alleviate the trauma that has been caused by racism and by colonization, then we're using money for a sacred purpose. And so, therefore, money can be medicine. I know in the book you you speak so powerfully to the central question um, which is at the foundation of much science fiction. I'm quoting right now. What if is a legitimate tool of healing and reconstructing the world? Even just asking the question opens us to radically different possible realities and can lead to healing to a greater sense of dignity and purpose. And you go on to say, what if funders could help restore a perfect world? What if money could be medicine instead of what divides us? What if rather than using wealth to cause further harm, we followed the seven steps to healing? And before you speak to, um, I believe, the one or two final steps briefly, um, you, you also share that, you know, some of the pushback that, that you get or that you've been getting or that you suspected you would probably get from the people who say, well, this is just the way it is. There's, you know, there's really no way that we can change this. It's just the way it is. So what's, what's your response to that, Edgar? Well, that, uh, that mentality does not give me hope, and I think we have to be hopeful. <laughs> I do believe right. that, uh, that we can, uh, as human beings, heal ourselves and heal our communities um, if we all take responsibility in making things right. Everyone has a role in the process of healing. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if we have caused harm or our families historically have caused harm or if we've been on the receiving side of that. We all have a role to play. And I think that, uh, you know, if we, if we really work to uh, examine our own humanity and our trauma and go on a healing journey, we're going to be open to doing that in a, a way that is uh, collective. And so that is the, the final part of the book is really thinking about how do we actually um, stop hurt from happening in the world? How do we stop, uh, you know, what's happening um, around mass incarceration in the U.S.? And 
across the world how we are treating immigrants and how do we get to a place where we are, um, you know, using resources to support those who are living at the margins and closing the race wealth gap. All of these uh, things, how do we how do we begin to move forward in a way that is, uh, you know, uh, humane and really recognizes the dignity in every single human being? And, uh, you know, my my solution for that is uh, really beginning to think about um, healing, because I think the world is just in pain and we know that hurting people hurt others. And so we have to take responsibility for healing our culture healing our um, institutions, identifying the colonized aspect of our culture and institutions and beginning to really dis dismantle that um, and really taking on a, a belief that we are all inherently connected, um, that our suffering is mutual and that our healing is mutual. Mm. The indigenous perspective of, uh, from my interpretation, of course, which is limited, um, is that we are responsible for seven generations that have come before and mm -hmm. the seven that have yet to arrive and that this lifetime is a precious opportunity to cease the cycles of violence and harm. And, and again, that's my interpretation of it. But um, would you close us out with, with your view of, of that, like how that applies to wealth as medicine. What it, what can we take away when we um, go away from listening in tonight to be just that piece of the cessation of harm and that we start to track for the seven generations ahead of us um, and map something that re ha rewires um, each of us individually in our communities and then, you know, over time, ripples out and forth. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I think the reason that I do this work is thinking about young people in the future. And you're right, we have a, a concept of seven generations, which means every decision I make today, my actions are influencing, um, you know, uh, my uh, generations for up to seven years, right? And so if we are so present in who we are and understanding our ancestors and where we came from, but also knowing that we are responsible for our future ancestors for seven years, it's really going to help us understand uh, influence the decisions that we're making. And so I think, uh, you know, really kind of carrying that with us every day and doing the work to examine um, who we are, how we're showing up, what our responsibility is to be uh, members of a community, how we take care of each other, whether you have $5, $5 or $5 million, how you're using your resources um, in a way that is really about community and centering community and centering folks who have been marginalized and left out of um, opportunities. Um, is, um, you know, those are, are, are ways uh, are things that can guide us to making decisions that might be different. Um, and we're all going to be uh, in a much better place as a result of thinking those ways. Well, Edgar, it has been such an honor and pleasure to be here with you tonight. And I just want to point everyone's attention back to decolonizingwealth.com and especially to the Take Action page. Um, that's backslash Take Action. And of course, if you have not yet read the book, please go get a copy, tell people about it, pass it along. And Edgar can be found on Twitter, uh, both under Villanueva Edgar, as well as Decolonizing Wealth. And um, Edgar, do you have any events or engagements that you'd like people to be aware of in the near future that you want to just point out to us before we close tonight? Um, absolutely. I am. Uh, we have uh, a major event happening next week, next Wednesday in Minneapolis. Um, we're planning um, some big community events in New Orleans and Los Angeles. Uh, so refer to the website under uh, decolonizingwealth.com events, and we'll keep all of the details up updated there as we plan out these events. Great. Well, once again, 
Thank you so much for being with us, Edgar, and um, all the best to you in your work. Really, really appreciate the authenticity and the spirit of your voice and the courage that it took as well to write this book and bring it out into the world. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on the program. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening in and for being a part of the ongoing public dialogues that we offer here at Restorative Justice on the Rise. We hope to see you in the near future. And just a reminder, we also have a public dialogue session tomorrow night for the Redemption Project. We have allied with Van Jones's team to offer discussions post-Sunday episodes. So tomorrow night, we will have the honor of hosting um, Don Lacey and facilitator um, from the program on Sunday, Karina from the Stronghold um, Foundation, or excuse me, not the foundation, organization. So join us if you can for that. Um, that's a live discussion with facilitator and stakeholders from the Redemption Project. Thank you again, everyone. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. Hope to see you in the near future. For more information about restorative justice on the rise, that's restorativejusticeontherise.org. Thank you and good night.